Welcome back to Check This Please, a podcast where we have been rereading the webcomic Check Please, specifically so we can get to this one strip, number 2.7, Parse, Part 1, which was originally posted on January 20th, 2015. And after that, it belonged to the world. I'm Secret, and I'm here today with... Hello, I'm Tomato. That's right, she is. Um, should I tell everybody what we're looking at? Yeah, I think you ought to. Okay, well, get put your hats on, everybody. Make sure they're backwards. Okay, listen. We open with Biddy clutching a key as he stares into the middle distance worriedly, an ellipsis coming out of his mouth. He then says, have you ever overheard something you weren't supposed to hear looking up through his brows? You know, eerily. We open on shitty, this is obviously in the recent past, shitty at a kegster, epic kegster 20 fucking 14. He is greeting everybody. We see shenanigans going on in the background. Everybody's dressed up to the nines in ridiculous party gear. We're told we're at the house in December, 2014. And Jack is regaling Biddy with a ridiculous story um, about something that happened at a previous party. Uh, Not before, Biddy, you were fixing to hide away in your room. And Jack says, well, you know, something always goes wrong during these parties. But slowly, Jack uh, comes out of his shell and tells Biddy stories of his previous daring do when he chased out a bunch of the uh, football O-line out of the house with a fire extinguisher. It wasn't that bad, but that party took up two issues of the swallow. So we understand the kind of party that we're talking about here. Biddy says that he's going to tweet about this. And in fact, he did. Jack then suggests that they have a, quote, selfie, end quote, together. Biddy makes fun of him gently. And then, and then, from off panel comes a voice saying, I wouldn't believe it if I weren't seeing it myself. Jack Zimmerman at a party taking a selfie. We go to the next panel and Biddy is looking brightly passed into at some other person while Jack looking, I think the word might be stricken and sort of softly lit by the light of the party says Kent to which Kent says, Hey Zims, did you miss me? I have overheard some suggestion from people who were in the fandom at this time, like before I got into it that Kent Parsons speaks with vocal fry. Oh, I have also heard this and I believe I was one of the people who adopted this. So I believe it would be, I wouldn't believe it if I weren't seeing it myself. Jack Zimmerman is at a party taking a cell. Like, I don't know how to talk with vocal fry. Actually, I think I'm doing it right now. (laughs) I guess it would be like, hey Zim, did you miss me? Jack Zimmerman at a party taking a selfie. I love this. I love this because that makes Kent sound like he is from California. And I like that. Well, he's he's not. Okay. But I like the image of him adopting a Valley Girl persona. Anyway, that's for another time. Let's get into the strip. All right. Here's what we're going to do. Tomato, here's what we're going to do. We talked about it off panel. We're going to do these three strips, and then we're going to do a fourth parse episode where we talk about the content in the blog posts and also, I don't know, any runoff. That's what listeners can look forward to. 
And I'm sure there will be runoff. This is a well-irrigated panel. All right, let's get into it. As I've written in the outline, the first panel is unnecessary. And also, I hate it. I think Biddy is off model. And I guess the point of this first image is to convey that Biddy is like shaken by what he's just observed, which we'll find out soon enough are the events of parse three, two strips from now. But I feel like that particular beat doesn't really have an outlet anywhere in the story. Like, Biddy being shaken isn't something that's like followed through at at any point. I wish this first panel just didn't exist. I think it weakens like an overall really strong arc, actually. The other reason I think it might exist is so that we really notice the key in his hand. Uh, You pointed out several strips back when we were looking at the house bulletin board that it reminded you of video game design. And this for me also reminds me of video game design. Like there's a very specific and unusual detail that gets highlighted visually in some way. For me, I think this is for us to notice the key. I think this is probably a symptom of the sort of thing that Ngozi does in her blog posts, which we'll talk about in a future a future episode, where she overemphasizes details that we would have noticed anyway. So for me, that also brought this to mind. We'll we'll talk about it when we talk about the second panel, but you can also see the key in the second panel. So I don't think that the first one is giving us any information that isn't conveyed in the second panel and also is necessary. Oh, I agree. I mean, I think this is like not a well done panel. I just think that the key in the second panel is subtle. So you know, harder to notice. And I think we have established a pattern where Ngozi wants us to notice things very clearly. I don't know. Sometimes when I comment on her drawing style or I say something is off model, I feel kind of bad because generally I do think she's like a really good visual storyteller, which is something I'll say as many times as I have to. But you can sort of see in this first panel that like his left eye, so on the viewer's right, is like too large. It seems like larger than his other eye, which is nearer to the camera. So it's just it's just not like a well-drawn panel. It's like his eyes look too far apart. His expression seems like it's not in the same plane. I wish it just didn't exist. What you can see, however, in both of these panels, obviously the background is being repurposed, is that Biddy has decorated his room. So if you think back to 1.22, you get a shot where Biddy is moving boxes around and talking to his mom on the phone and this is before he's really like actively moved in and set the room up so you can see in that strip that Johnson had up a hockey poster where Biddy has now put up a framed I don't know either a smallish version or a print or something of the American flag the Georgia state flag and the Samwell school seal I realize that this is parse, so precious few people are tuning into this, probably thinking like, oh, I'm curious about the Georgia state flag. But unfortunately, before we get to the before we get to the the good part, I'm going to talk about the Georgia state flag. I talked to a friend of mine from Georgia earlier tonight 
unlike me, he's somebody who was like born and raised in Georgia. And actually he was in the car driving back from Georgia. And I asked him about the Georgia state flag. And immediately he was like, how many versions of it have there been now? Like three or four? And the answer is three. And I'll get into it in a second. But he went on to basically elaborate on how from the time he was a kid growing up in Georgia, there was a huge amount of drama about the Georgia state flag. And the reason why is because from 1956 to 2001, when we were kids, the Georgia state flag was dominated by a squared off Confederate flag on the right side of the flag. And then it was flanked to the left by the Georgia state seal on a blue background. And like I said, this is the flag from 1956 to 2001. 1956 is in the middle of the civil rights movement. This is obviously an adoption that was made explicitly as like a racist signal. The last Democratic governor of Georgia was a man named Roy Barnes, and he redesigned the flag in 2001 so that the Confederate battle flag aspect of it was minimized along with like a couple of United States flags to sort of represent the history of Georgia. And this redesign of the flag was meant to be like a compromise, but it was so universally hated that it became a major issue in the 2002 Georgia gubernatorial election and Roy Barnes ended up losing. And of course, Georgia hasn't had a Democratic governor since. And to be clear, like if you're familiar with the history of the United States, you know that Georgia traditionally, like most of the U.S., uh, like most of the U.S. South was traditionally a Democratic stronghold. Like Jimmy Carter is from Georgia and Georgia is part of the sort of larger Dixiecrat movement. So this is kind of like an interesting crystallization of how U.S. politics work through Georgia. To be totally clear, the reason why this Democrat lost the race for re-election as governor of Georgia in 2002 was because he tried to take the Confederate battle flag off of the Georgia state flag. The redesign that happened in 2003, which is the flag that is still the state flag of Georgia right now and is the flag that Biddy has up in his room at the house, is literally the Stars and Bars national flag of the Confederate States of America. It just puts the Georgia state seal into the stars in the the stars part of the stars and bars design. People who listen to this podcast, at least if they're American, probably know what they think the Confederate flag looks like. But the Confederate flag that has the big X in the middle of it with the stars sort of running down the blue part on like a red background, that is a Confederate battle flag that was not widely used during the Confederacy. It was adopted in the 20th century widely to signal allegiance to the Confederacy, almost as like an anti-civil rights movement. The national flag of the Confederacy is literally the Georgia state flag that Biddy has up in his room, minus the Georgia state seal. So effectively, what Biddy has in his bedroom is the Confederate flag. I originally, in making this outline, asked the question, would 
Beatty know that? And having talked to my friend and done a little research, I think it's possible that he would. I also would ask whether or not Ngozi would necessarily know that because she is not, in fact, from Georgia. She may have just Googled Georgia state flag, seen what it looked like, and moved on. And as somebody from the North, who nevertheless has like lived in Georgia, that the Georgia state flag literally is the Confederate flag with like one minor addition. I actually did not know that until I started researching this. And I don't necessarily want to like spend most of our parse episode talking about like the Confederacy, you know, old Dixie. But I do think this is interesting context to introduce in dialogue with our previous discourse about Biddy's comprehension of politics and how being from Georgia has impacted him. I'm sure if you asked him, he would say something like, it's part of our history. It's not meant as like a racist symbol. But regardless of how he thinks of it and what he thinks it means, you can see that growing up in Georgia necessitates that like the these things sort of follow through in your experience. And he's now brought it with him and like put it up in the house. So regardless of whether or not he's intentionally communicating something hateful, it's still there. Okay. So there's two things going on here, right? There's like what this is doing in terms of what it communicates to the reader from Ngozi to reader, not kind of thinking about Biddy as who he would be if he were a real person. And then they're thinking about what these things mean to Biddy. I suspect that in terms of what Ngozi is communicating to the reader, Biddy cares about being from Georgia. He's also got a Samwell seal on his wall. I've never known anyone to have a Samwell. I mean, I've never known anyone to have like the seal of their undergraduate university on the wall. So this shows us something about Biddy and like what he cares about, where he's from. He's showing that on his wall. He likes having framed pictures. Okay, fine. Then I think we kind of have to ask again to Secret's point, how is Biddy's relationship to politics and being from Georgia, how is it impacting him in the moment? And how would other people conceive of that and understand that? For me, And I don't know that we can fully see this in Biddy's actions, but for me, it's impossible to see someone with an American flag on their wall as Biddy has here, who's like a private person and not like a public building where you have to have an American flag somewhere. Um, It's really impossible for me to see that and not associate it with imagery that uh, propagated post 9-11 when there was a huge and largely destructive outpouring of patriotism in the U.S. For me and like my family and my experience of that period, this was like quite a destructive outpouring of patriotism. So for me, it's really hard to see Biddy as someone who I don't think he would adopt any of those problematic uh, concerns attached to having a Confederate flag on your wall or attached to having an American flag on your wall. I don't think that this is something that he would like say, yes, I do believe in the horrible things that people who do this sometimes believe in. But it's hard for me to then not see him as someone who has never had to think about it or who has never been like impacted negatively by this kind of patriotism or this kind of um, 
this kind of experience. That informs how I read his character too. So my understanding of the controversy surrounding this particular flag is that everybody acknowledges that the Confederate battle flag, again, that's the one that has the X in the middle that most people just call the Confederate flag. Um, My understanding is that it was widely acknowledged even in the late 90s, early 2000s in Georgia, that that was something that could be misconstrued as hateful and therefore it should no longer be on the Georgia state flag because it was obviously like civil rights era lashing out at changes that the mostly white like legislature in the state of Georgia wanted to push back on. The way that they modernized the flag was essentially by adopting a more official version of the Confederate state flag under the rationale that because that was the actual flag that Southern states flew when they were part of the Confederacy, it was historical rather than ahistorical, and therefore it wasn't hateful. Well, that's really fascinating, isn't it? Because I don't know if you guys know why the Confederacy seceded from the North, but uh, it had some hateful reasons attached to it. So curious. As mentioned in a previous episode of this podcast, yes, I did read Gone with the Wind when I was 13 years old. Just so we're clear, um, if anyone here is listening who's not from the United States or who doesn't have like, you know, 19th century American history at their fingertips, uh, there are many reasons that the South seceded from the North, but the primary reason is that the states wanted to maintain slavery, i.e. enslaving Black Americans. So um, it's racist. Like any reference to the Confederacy inherently evokes a history of deep racism and really horrible practices that this country was founded on. Surprise, history, also racist. But I think the argument that somebody who did not think of themselves as racist would make in support of this redesigned post-2003 Georgia state flag would be that it happened and therefore it's part of our history regardless of whether or not it's good or bad and therefore it's subsumed as part of the larger southern identity and the thing is like that's pretty much bullshit but the version of biddy that's not essentially like idealized in order to be the lead in this particular comic is the kind of person who would probably make that sort of argument because otherwise why would you put this flag up in your dorm room my personal experience with the american flag or like american iconography i think is slightly different like i was certainly on board the U.S. reaction to 9-11 is toxic and destructive train, like very much so, like even then. But the expression of it through like a base level of, I don't know, 
patriotic iconography is not something that like factored into my particular experience. Like my, you know, very, very left-leaning parents like very often flew the U.S. flag on like basically any holiday because like, you know, the country represents left-leaning ideals that the GOP is perverting. Yeah, I understand that. I also lived in a pretty conservative place that had a strong conservative backlash um, against people who were not for the war. And there was a fairly strong military presence in my life for various reasons. And my dad's family's Muslim. So it just like was not a good combination. So for me, it's very hard to detach American iconography from Islamophobia because often in my formative years, they were, they were very much hand in hand. So I understand also that everyone might not have this particular experience. Um, but for me, they, they definitely are related. Now, I don't think that Biddy is purposely evoking this, obviously. Like, I don't think that you were like, why do you have the American flag on your wall? And he'd be like, because I hate everybody. Like, no, I don't think that would be Biddy's answer. I do think for me, the fact that he puts up the flag without thinking about it and without also even seeing like any kind of like left-leaning ideals as maybe your parents would have shows something about his relationship to that iconography, which is pretty different from, from like mine, for example. For the most part, depending on who you are and where you're from and how you've been taught to read certain iconography, things can carry like very different meanings. However, what I will say is that like in the US in 2020, basically all but like a precious few very vocal like, I don't know, retrograde weirdos universally acknowledge that, like, if you are displaying the Confederate battle flag, it's effectively communicating that, like, you don't care about other people's feelings, at least. Yeah. Um, And that, by the way, I also say as someone from the Northeast, that flag is carried by people who are born and raised and living in states that were never part of the South. So the the Confederate battle flag represents much more than like, quote, history, end quote, you know? Yeah, uh, you could buy Confederate battle flag, or I guess it's just probably better to call it Confederate flag merch pretty much all over Georgia in the 2010s. Well, that's a yikes. <laughs> well, I, to me. Yeah, I mean, it is, but it's also like, you're in Georgia, you're in rural Georgia, you're in a gas station. I don't know who's around here. You know what? Um, It's like whenever I become aware that somebody is carrying a gun, like it makes me feel weird and like vaguely unsafe. Like something about it still sets me ill at ease because I think that's the intention of these things. And I guess to sort of round this out, I am pretty sure that that is not Biddy's intention in like having either the American flag or the uh, like Georgia state flag up. And again, I reiterate that like, my 
guess would literally be that Ngozi Google Georgia State flag, saw what it looked like, drew it in the panel, and then reused that background, and then it's on his wall. Uh, I'm sure if she knew this history, it probably wouldn't be in here, and I don't think it's like relatively obvious history. That said, regardless of like what Biddy is intending to communicate, if somebody has a particular, if somebody has a particular knowledge of like the history of this flag, then immediately upon seeing it, like regardless of what Biddy's intention is, it might be interpreted in a way that's unsafe and potentially hostile. Even if Biddy would probably not want to communicate hostility to anyone specifically, Except for the new character we meet in this strip. So moving on to the next panel. Oh yeah, um, panel two. You like this one, <laughs> and so do I. It's very good. Yeah, the the comic should have started here. This would have been a better place to start. Uh, the way he's leaning into the camera with the lighting on his face is like very eerie. And it's also not weirdly bisected in a way that makes him look off model like he is in panel one. I think also the key is more subtle here. It just feels like there's more trust in the reader to 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 understand what's happening, to trust in, in the storytelling. So I think it's a better panel overall. I also think that the expression on his face in his panel still conveys like a sense of unease or a sense of sort of like wariness or something. So I think you can get a little bit of the emotional affect that's supposedly in panel one, even in panel two. So it's just like panel one should have been cut. Like it just shouldn't be in there. And it's not, he's not saying anything. He's not like conveying any information. Like you would literally lose nothing. Yeah, agreed. So now that we've started with all of that, I think this point about what Biddy's blog is doing at the front of this strip is worth grounding a little, especially because I think the overall framing of this arc will effectively get lost over the next like three strips because like Parse shows up and uh, all this backstory and all these other things sort of drift away from the beginning of this strip. But I just guess I would ask like, what is this particular vlog framing doing for the overall story? I've never actually seen anybody comment on these panels. Like I've seen parts one through three dissected in meta posts over and over and over again, but I've never seen anybody remark on what the introduction Biddy gives does to the overall like storyline over these next three strips. I think it does a couple of things. I think it heightens the stakes of the story, like the eeriness that you mentioned, the way that we're set up to read the following events is immediately more intense. I think that it creates a framework of unease and uncertainty around Parse because we like see what happens through Biddy, right? So the fact that Biddy feels uneasy about whatever just happened gives a certain extra weight to whatever's about to happen. And because the thing that unexpected that happens is Parse, like it gives it to Parse. I also think it puts Parse and Biddy 
in more visual conversation. Like obviously they are both blondes. They are both slighter than Jack. They both have, you know, occasionally wear button down shirts. So, you know, very similar dudes. But really what I mean is that in the first panel, Biddy is a lone blonde figure in particular lighting. In the last panel, Purse is a lone blonde figure in particular lighting. And that does something interesting visually where these characters are set up in some kind of relationship to each other, which has not happened with really any other character in the comic. Obviously they both have a relationship to Jack. So that immediately brings to mind, like, are they somehow parallels to each other? Are they somehow foils of each other? But there's some kind of connection between them that I think that this does do, even if there's not a payoff for the sense of unease in the same strip. I feel like buried within this parse arc and to a lesser extent, like within the comic overall, there is a subtext about who is the narrator? Can the narrator be believed? What is the narrator's bias? How does the framing interpret how the story is told? So everything that goes wrong in Kent Parsons showing up at this party is related in Parse 3. But of course, that's something that we only hear through Biddy's sort of like half- eavesdropping on part of the conversation. So he starts off here by saying, have you ever heard something that you weren't supposed to overhear? And I know this is like a deep pull, but sometimes people do circulate around the fact that on the Check Please Facebook page, no idea when the last time anybody looked at that was, there is a post about this series of strips written from the perspective of John Johnson, the metaphysical goalie, whose hockey posters Biddy put down, took down to put up a racist flag, where he basically says, is Parse a nice dude, like Shitty says, or is he a mean person, like Biddy overheard? What are we supposed to believe about this character? How does the viewpoint shift the way that he appears? So I feel like to a certain extent, Biddy giving us this intro and then the rest of the strip taking place directly after his like, you know, this is a story that I am telling. I believe that was supposed to be grounding the perspective and maybe creating more of a like, what is the truth? Is there such a thing as the truth? Is it possible that like both Jack and Kent have some point here and they've both been hurt in certain ways but because biddy is the person we're getting the story via we are more inclined to accept biddy's version and i feel like so much of the parse story as we go through the comic initially starts as if that might in fact be what the point is but then of course by i don't know year four certainly that whole thing has sort of dissolved but i think we'll see in the notes in i want to say it's the next comic i think i mean we'll do a special episode about the blog post but i think it's the notes to 
parse two, where Ngozi basically says, you know, a series of questions and then her response to her series of questions about is parse actually a cool guy, blah, 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 is those are all good questions. And then she never answers the question. So I'm sure we'll pick up on that. But I really think that like, it's possible that the bitty framing device here was possibly grounding a broader thematic point about bias and perception and like who is the narrator that just didn't get developed to its natural conclusion. This is part of why the conversation around these strips and around Kent Parson is so difficult in part is because I also get that sense that it was supposed to be a particular kind of complicated. Ngozi would reference Biddy's flaws. She would reference his unreliability on occasion. And then, of course, eventually that shifted. But I, I don't know that that was a conversation that the fandom was willing to have, really, in a, in a meaningful way. So we can think more about that as we go through. But I'm convinced. I think that this was a way of exploring the boundaries of narrative of narrator limitation. So then we get to the actual party. And... We find out that, as we've been told, Jack doesn't like to go to parties. He was planning on skipping this party, but he shows up anyway. It does seem like people are leaving him alone. Like, it doesn't seem like anyone's hassling him. And Jack says to Biddy, something always goes wrong at these parties. And it's like, well, yes, obviously, something seems to go wrong. So, uh, perceptive. And then he says... Make sure you lock your door, Biddle. And this follows through on the key that he's holding in the first couple panels. It'll be followed up on with Shitty telling him to go lock his door in number two. And then he's coming upstairs in number three and happens to overhear the conversation because he's going upstairs to lock his door. It seems like this is setting up why he's going to end up stumbling upon this interaction two comic strips later. But I never thought about this before. It also raises this point. If Jack's door was locked, then doesn't that mean that he let Parse into his room? Yes, it does. The only comment I have to make about this party is that, again, because we've commented on sort of like, undergrad life at American universities. Yes, frat parties really do get wild. Off-campus parties really do get wild. Where I went to school, people got shot every year at parties. I, I also went to school in a city where shootings were like pretty common and it, and the school isn't a part of the city where shootings happen. So like definitely this doesn't happen at every school, but just for the record, like, yeah, parties get crazy. People do crazy shit. People are on like every drug imaginable and they go bananas. Nothing like this has ever happened at a party that I was at. Oh, yeah. I was never at one of the parties where someone got shot, but it happened every year. Yeah, I went to school with really, really intense, really intense Greek life that was not well overlooked by the school and in a city where people were like just doing drugs and having parties anyway. So, you know, it would overlap. So then we've got this wonderful yellow backgrounded panel where Jack is telling Biddy his story about how he used a fire extinguisher to chase 
part of the football team out of the house his sophomore year in college. So again, something that I've been noticing recently is that a lot of these Jack and Biddy interactions are basically just like Jack talking about himself and Biddy being like, oh, really? Hmm. So I see that happening again here. They don't seem to have like a very like reciprocal conversation style where it's like, let me tell you a little about about me. Oh, that's interesting. Here's a follow-up question. Oh, thank you. Here's a follow-up question to you. It's like, it's not kind of back and forth like that. It just seems to be Jack talking about himself. Yeah, I was wondering, is this Jack showing off, do you think? I mean, I guess so. I just think it's interesting that like, the only thing that Jack seems to be able to talk about is Jack. And also Jack knows and, and thinks that other people will find Jack interesting. I just, I just think it's an interesting sort of like bent to his character because yeah, it's like he's a little self-involved and he's a little selfish. He's spent most of his life being the center of attention. And we've seen some evidence in the comic that he doesn't always love that, but whether or not he likes it or it's been overall beneficial to him or it's occasionally been a drag on his own mental health, he spent the vast majority of his life being an only child, being a superstar, being a media plot line. So yeah, I mean, he's effectively, for better or worse, had it communicated to him over and over and over again that he is important and interesting and his experiences and like stories are worth listening to and people want to hear them. So Biddy is effectively proving that assumption correct by being into it. What I really like about that is that his stories are not interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, this story isn't good. Um, Beyond the story, the one thing that I have always been totally charmed by is the fact that the name of the party is Epikegster. So E-P-I-K-E-G-S-T-E-R, one word. But Jack very specifically says in this panel, Epikegster, two words which just says basically everything you need to know about Jack. Like, he cannot just adopt the goofy portmanteau squish name for this party. He has to say two English language words. What I like is that he refers to Epic Kegster, but he doesn't put an article in front of it. So he's still using it as the name of the party, but it's still not the word that should he uses. I don't know. I find this track really charming. Like, would I want to be listening to his story about chasing football dudes out of the house? No, but in the context of the comic, I find this version of Jack really, really charming. And I had forgotten how charming I found this version of Jack um, because he doesn't, he disappears after a while. So it's really nice to re-encounter this version of Jack who is trying, however badly, although not that badly because Biddy's into it, to like showcase his, you know, daring do um, and his brave defense of the house via fire extinguisher. Well, the thing is, if I had a crush on Jack Zimmerman, 
I would probably really want to hear the story and be really charmed by it. And beyond just thinking like, oh, he's, you know, an adorable moron, I would probably thinking like, oh, he's letting me in. He's telling me an intimate a story from his personal history about an experience that he had that really means something. If I had a crush on him. I do remember feeling that way when I first read the strip. I remember feeling like, oh my God, this is the most we've ever heard Jack say. And this is the most sort of animated we've ever seen him. And this is the most information about his interior experience we've ever gotten, which is funny because like, well, from him anyway, other than the hockey prints, we, we don't see a lot of his interior experience. He's not really discussing it here, but we know that he wanted to get the footballers out of the house. So whatever. But footballers, that's not football players is what I meant to say. And I imagine that reading this strip for the first time is probably the closest I personally have ever come to having a crush on Jack Zimmerman. And it was really exciting. I, I, I mean, obviously, I see how Biddy, Biddy's delighted by it. And you can see that here. He's thinking a little heart just in case we couldn't get it from the adoring look on his face. So I'm not going to read this whole passage from the blog post, but Ngozi does follow up on this moment within the blog post. And basically what she describes is how for the past two years, Jack has been mentally shaping this story into a narrative script that he can share with somebody in a moment such as this. And she mentions that he practiced it on both Mario Lemieux and Wayne Gretzky. So, okay. And he's effectively like, I don't know, created like a little monologue for himself to deliver. And when Biddy is impressed and sort of flushed by hearing it, the language that Ngozi uses, by the way, is that after hearing the story, Biddy is slightly more amused. So apparently he's not even like rolling around in laughter because Jack is so funny and so interesting. But yeah, he's like slightly more amused. It gets like a, you know, like a C plus reception. And Jack thinks to himself, if this whole hockey thing doesn't work out, I could do stand up comedy. Biddle thinks I'm hilarious, which if not sarcastic, is really quite a bit of like ego inflation. (laughs) The one story I've been practicing for two years to tell to somebody has been slightly more amusing than the conversation we were having three minutes ago. I guess I could do stand-up comedy. I think this is from an era in the comic when the comic took itself less seriously and the characters less seriously. So I absolutely do think that Jack Zimmerman is thinking this 100% seriously and that we as the readers are invited to be like, oh my God, that's ridiculous. You know, and it's nice. It's nice to be back here. Yeah, like, I mean, the sentiment that I get from this blog post is basically that, yeah, she's like poking fun at him. Like the author of the comic, the creator of Jack Zimmerman is basically like, ugh, can you get a load of this dweeb? And yeah, listen, I I can not only get a load of him, I could get a load from him because what a great story. I got nothing to say to that. I support it. So I guess it's a good point to remark on how the sort of visual construction of the party here is pretty successful, actually. So all of these scenes within the party, minus that one sort of like butter yellow panel, is very dim and underlit. 
And this stands in contrast to the way that the main characters, mostly Jack and Biddy, but then also Parse at the end, are like colored in as if they were existing in like a daylight shot of any other strip. So you really see like where your attention is supposed to focus. The way that the party atmosphere is conveyed is like really well done. There's this sort of bluish tone that's fallen over all of the rooms. Christmas lights are creating a kind of like greenish cast with a lot of shadow in the room. And then the thing that I think is like really clever is that there are a few, like really only a handful, like, you know, three or four concrete characters who are really visible. And when I say characters, I don't even mean like the main cast of the strip. I mean, like faces you can pick out in the crowd or even in certain panels, like entire like human beings you can fully pick out. So what you're seeing is a lot of like people's backsides and like errant limbs in places and like partly defined masses of people standing around. And what's great about this is that it really mixed like the mood and context of a party like this, where even if you're totally sober and the house is relatively well lit, it's such a sprawling experience that's so boisterous that it's never possible to like be present for all of what's happening in any given party. And that's just really well done. It's like a really good way of conveying the feeling of being at the party, conveying the mood of being at the party. That's a really smart choice that she doesn't like labor to really create a lot of background characters. And, you know, you can really see different things that are going on in the background. Like Ngozi is very funny and she has a good eye for sort of like the background details, like a little gag in the background. And none of that is happening here because the fact is like when you're at a party like this, you're probably, unless you're like standing immediately next to somebody, you're probably not aware of like somebody doing a pratfall or like, you know, a beer exploding in the next room or whatever. I will also say, I really, really like that the gray background of everybody kind of dancing and whatever sets up in the final panel a subtle way for us to know that the background characters aren't super important. Like we're not super, super paying attention to them. But once you look at that panel more than once, you start seeing known characters and their reactions to Kent Parson. So it's this really lovely way of saying like, this isn't the point of the strip, but if you look, you get details that kind of reward you, but they're not details that distract you from what's actually happening in the strip. So it's just, it's just really nice. Yeah, I don't care about the selfie thing. Uh, I guess my only note about it is that Jack says something about it being Biddy's first big kegster. And then my initial thought was, but did, weren't they having kegsters last year? Like, hasn't Biddy been to a bunch of kegsters up to this point? I think that they have. I think that this is probably an, a, a different caliber of kegster, you know? It's a real big one. That's my guess. I think the I think the selfie thing in 2020, knowing how the comic ends, I don't find it especially exciting. But when I first read this strip, I was so excited by the idea that Jack not only like was willing to take a selfie with Biddy, but that he offered it. Because to me, that was also Jack making himself kind of weirdly vulnerable in the same way that he made himself vulnerable by sharing the story about football dudes. He's reaching out towards Biddy to do something that Biddy likes 
we haven't really seen him make overtures like that before. It was really exciting to me back in the day. Okay, look, I'm going to backtrack because I've been waiting many years to say this to somebody. And for whatever reason, I it just occurred to me that I could now in the panel where Jack is leaning on the wall and Biddy is looking up at him and he's saying, you are fixing the hideaway in your room. Something about the way that Jack's posture is drawn is also really off model and really jarring to me specifically where his like hand is half in his pockets with like his hip jutting out and his torso sort of twisted it looks like from below the waist his body is like wrong just like Try to look at that panel and like mimic what you would have to do to like have your wrist at the angle that Jack's wrist is at there. I don't think the human body could do it. Sorry, that's just been bugging me for many years. No, it has also bugged me since the first time I saw this panel in 2015. So um, agreed. I think the problem is the angle from which she's drawing. Like it is a difficult angle, but the top of, so his head is fine. And then his body is like not fine. And I don't know if it was just like a trying to crunch him to fit in the space or, I mean, it's a difficult angle to draw from, you know, she did a better job than I could do. I don't know. I can't draw this, but I think the problem is that also there are wrinkle lines in the t-shirt, which make him look like he's like, there's torsion in his torso. So it just looks bad. It looks very strange. I wonder whether, you know, he's got like one foot against the wall, like, you know, new wave French cinema style to let people know that he's available. Um, And maybe that would explain some of the some of the weird lines. But I think it's the angle. It's just a really weird angle because he's not at the same angle that Biddy is, I think, also is the problem. Like, I don't mean angle in terms of um, in terms of he's got his arm to the camera, but he's got his front to the camera or camera, you know, the screen that we're looking at. But, uh, but also like Biddy appears to not be on quite the same like plane as he is. So I think it's, I think that's part of the problem. Biddy appears to be doing like a, he appears to be like mid squat. I don't know what's going on with their legs. I don't know. Maybe Jack is like kneeling. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Thanks for thanks for coming to Anatomy Critique Corner with Secret and Tomato. Two uh, very skilled and experienced anatomy artists. But we do have bodies. You know, I'm used to that. I feel like I have the certification to critique the art if I want to. I think you do, too. Well, okay, enough of that bullshit. Did you miss me? Did you? I missed you before I knew you. I've missed you since 2015. I've missed you since this panel. Let's talk about it. All right. Well, you know, it's ironic, isn't it? Because ultimately, many people would actually when he was written out of the story. But here he is. So before he uh, has to shove, you know, an entire humble pie in his mouth, which he would pay several thousand dollars for. Here we are. Here he is. Here he is with his beautiful hat and his beautiful, mysteriously colored eyes. And his uh, sense for drama. So, did you miss me? Biddy said, did you miss me in 2.2? And I said to put a pin in it. Well, take that pin out and let it fall off the wall. Because a lot of people have noted this 
dialogue parallel. And I guess I'm wondering if you think there's anything to that or if it's just a stock phrase that sometimes people say when they want to know if someone missed them. No, I think it's purposeful. I think we've seen over the past several strips that the set up to Kent was very purposeful. I'll also remind everybody that Ngozi was in graduate school at this time and was making this for her thesis, which is probably the most critique she got on her writing and so on, um, I would imagine, uh, at, at any point of writing the strip. My guess is that it was purposeful. And as I mentioned in this strip, Biddy and Kent are weirdly set visually parallel to each other. And I think that this is another way of setting them parallel to each other. It's another way of saying like, hey, these characters watch how they interact or watch something going on here, watch this space. I don't actually think that they're foils of each other. I think that there's something more complicated happening with Jack, Kent and Biddy, or if they are foils of each other, they're not just foils of each other. But I do think that we're being asked to set up some kind of comparison between these characters through subtle hints. And did you miss me as one of them? I believe. I believe it. I mean, if you told me either was the case, like Ngozi had said, like, yes, it was meant to be a deliberate parallel. No, it's just a coincidence. I would believe either. Well, if she came out and said, like, no, it's just a stock phrase, obviously I would believe it. But... I don't want to believe it. I want to believe it's deliberate. And because of the other things that sort of seeded the path for Kent Parsons' arrival, it's easier for me to believe that it is deliberate. All right, so here's what listeners of this podcast need to know about me. I have been writing a Kent Parsons meta post for three to four years that I have never finished and I'll probably never finish it. And the draft is currently about half written and it's 7,800 words. And therein I have worked out a lot of my feelings about the visual analysis of what's going on with this character. So I will now read you an excerpt from it. Kent is framed very overtly as the most important person in the panel. It is a blatant and overt signal. Look at this character. He is important. Pay attention. The background is gray to Kent's full color. Illustrated in that gray background mass are the other members of Samwell Men's Hockey. They are all looking at and reacting to Kent. Again, it's very difficult to make a character appear out of the ether at the very last moment in a strip, frame him like this, and show the entire cast reacting to his arrival without signaling that he is important and meant to be paid attention. To assume that this is accidental would be doing the artist a disservice service. The reason why I set up this ekphrasis like this is because you get a lot of critiques of Kent Parson fandom that basically assert this character was never meant to be as popular as he is. He was never meant to be important. The amount of attention he gets is undue. And all I can say is I think the amount of attention he gets and how important he is perceived to be is 
a direct response to everything that has been said about him up to this point and also the way that he is framed following all of that when he actually shows up on the page. If you have been for the past several months of check please thinking oh who's Kent Parson when is one of Ngozi's favorite characters going to show up and then he shows up and this is the introduction he gets every single thing is telling you look at this character this is what you should care about now and in that last panel you see a little bit of Biddy's Twitter app on which he is writing, Lord, I'm getting starstruck. And in fact, he did end up tweeting that. Like if you go to OMG, check please. This entire party, it was actually live tweeted by Biddy and that exact text or that exact tweet is on his Twitter as well. But that also is reinforcing how fucking exciting it is that Kent Parson showed up. You may or may not remember from, I don't know how many strips ago it was, but last year in the comic, Biddy had never heard of bad Bob Zimmerman, one of the most famous hockey players of all time. Well, he's heard about fucking Kent Parson because he's starstruck when he shows up. So if this character is not supposed to be important, then the artist of the comic made a lot of really big mistakes and doesn't know what they're doing and is incompetent. And as we both discussed, Ngozi is an effective visual storyteller. So I suspect it might have been done purposefully. I will also say that Biddy is the audience proxy and Biddy's face In addition to the tweet that he's about to tweet, the starstruck tweet, his face is really excited. He's got little white lines of excitement coming off of his head. Like if we use Biddy as our way to understand how to react to this character, we know to be excited. And at the same time, I think Jack's facial expression, which is drawn and melancholy or nervous, or I I actually don't know how to best describe it, but surprised but not in a good way i think the juxtaposition of biddy's excitement and then jack's sort of resignation makes ken's appearance also more intense yeah so biddy by the way around this time when this party is actually happening is also he also ends up taking a selfie with kent parson he tweets about how nice kent parson was to him Uh, Something that's really interesting, and I guess maybe we can break this down more when we talk about the blog or I don't know, some other time is, let's see, let me open up these stupid tweets. So when did I say this comic was posted? Is it the 20th of January? Yeah, so this is being posted on the 20th of January, 2015. December 14th, 2014 is when this party took place and Biddy live blogged it and yes i'm making quote marks if you were following biddy's twitter you would have seen all of biddy's real-time reactions to kent parson a month before you saw what he was actually reacting to in this strip 
So if you are taking part in the multi-platform storytelling element of the comic at this point, your excitement is going to be even more heightened because you've already seen a month ago Binny getting really pumped up about this and being like, oh, I'm getting starstruck. And then she's telling people who a month in the past saw Biddy tweet that what it was that he was looking at specifically when he was tweeting it. So everything is just like heightened. I was someone who was reading the Twitter at that time and I was beside myself. Like I was extremely excited and I don't think that it was because of nothing. And just to be clear, because these tweets and this comic that we're talking about are now taking place nearly six years in the past. Creators have a right to change the way they feel or indeed even their plans for their own art. So I think Kent Parson was supposed to be important, but then the creator changed her mind is also totally okay. But the argument that's made by people who are, I don't know, parse skeptics, whatever the the right, parse critics, whatever the parse fan antis, I don't know what the right term is, but people who argue effectively against this reading of Kent Parson are not making the argument that at a certain point, the comic changed because the author's feelings changed and that's okay. They're making the point that the initial interpretation based on what's in this strip was wrong. And that I think is incorrect. And we should talk more about it as we go forward because there are reasons for why people make that argument. And there are reasons for people wanting to excise this character out of the comic. They're not reasons that I adopt, but they exist. And I think they're worth dissecting. But I think it's really hard to argue that he was never supposed to mean anything because why would you give him a dramatic entrance otherwise? I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I agree, Ngozi could change her mind about what she's making at any time. It might impact the story in ways that we might critique. That's also fine. If this character was not meant to be important, this story wouldn't play out over three strips. When so much is elided in the comic, including the main character's love developing, it would be really a wild choice to spend time on this character and this arc if we weren't at least supposed to be paying attention to him. Now, I know that I've made the argument in the past that a lot of these strips are useless. So uh, maybe, you know... I don't know if that is believable, but I I really think that this was very obviously meant to set up a long arc that we were supposed to get into. Well, Kent Parson is here and he's wearing an abominably ugly shirt. And I don't love the way he's drawn on this first appearance, but he definitely does have a watch. And that's important. I don't have strong feelings about how he's drawn, but I do remember when I saw this panel for the first time with him sort of backlit, I was like, you know, overcome. Do you remember how you felt the first time that you saw this panel? No. Well, fair enough. You didn't have to marinate in it for months afterwards. So fair. Yeah. That's the thing. I not only didn't have to marinate in it for months afterwards, but I was done reading the comic within about, I don't know, seven minutes of (laughs) 
like reading this trip because I read all of year one and year two in one sitting. I don't know what I did next, but one of the first things I did when I was sort of like curious about this fandom and like what's going on is look up meta. Immediately, like the first thing that slammed me in the face was... Ken Parson is and is not abusive, like dueling meta posts. So immediately I knew something was up with this character. But yeah, I was actually looking for meta that would maybe be like visual analysis or visual deconstruction, you know, such as I'm so talented at. I wanted to read the others doing it as well. But all I found was basically like, oh, a nuclear bomb has gone off in this fandom. Did you ever find anyone else doing like serious visual analysis of the comic? No. And I haven't really done that much serious visual analysis of the comic either. The only time I've ever done visual analysis of the comic was when I was like, let's look at Jack's abs. Oh, I do want to say that like in that panel where his anatomy is weird and he's leaning against the wall, definitely I, I looking at it just now had the thought of like, well, here's Kit Zimmerman. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually why I read this comic. Jack Zimmerman's TNA. I regret saying that, but you know, can't go back now. Beggars really can't be choosers. That ain't it, kid. Uh, Do you have anything else that you want to add? Tits and ass won't get you jobs unless they're yours. No, that's all. I think the next, I'm going to be editing this episode, and I think we're at about an hour 15 minutes, which seems pretty truncated. However, that means that you're doing parse two, and I'm doing parse three, and I'm pretty sure that one will be six hours. So pay for it down the road, maybe? I don't have anything to add either, except that I'm really excited and I feel like my veins remembered what it felt like to have cool blood rushing through them back when the world was better, back in 2015 when everything was different, and uh, and I'm excited to rediscover that feeling. I don't know if it's like medically dangerous to have cool blood, but you know, I'll get back to you on that. I guess we'll end off here. I do want to say, since this is the first episode we are recording since our fundraiser, that I had a lot of fun watching The Mighty Ducks, which I would call a bad movie now that I've seen it. Not just the best parts. There is a child character in the movie who is entire personality is just doing a Rob Schneider comedy bit imitation, which is, as you might say in 2020, a choice. I also had a good time. It was vastly improved by the fact that I saw the movie through um, through secret screen share, which meant that it was essentially a collage. Like it was like a, like a slideshow of children and Emilio Estevez and uh, and that made it vastly funnier. So I don't know, you know, I might call that the like postmodern uh, uh, remix. And I think that one's a real hit, you know, highly recommend checking out the Mighty Ducks, but only if uh, if the lag causes it to be a real sideshow. But honestly, it was really fun. And thank you everyone for coming and raising money for good causes worldwide. Please vote. Oh yeah, uh, this, this podcast endorses Joe Biden for president and also uh, just... For the love of God, please. 
That's all I have to say right now. But I'm sure as we inch closer up to November, my my pleas will get more desperate. Where are we going next time? Where could it be? 2.8 parse part two. We'll we'll be back. Can't wait. I have been secrets, and you can find all the meta I'm not writing at Camillar, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or S-K-R-T-O-M-G on Tumblr, or Familiar on AO3. And I'm Tomato, and you can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. And you can find our podcast at checkdisplease.tumblr.com or on Podbean or on Spotify. Okay. All right. Bye. Great. Okay. See ya. Please is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit.